Hi, everybody. Kel Weinhold from The Professor is In. Welcome to the new version of our podcast. We are recording our podcast live on Wednesday afternoons at 2 p.m. Pacific. Make sure you're subscribed to The Professor is In newsletter to be sure and get that link if you'd like to join us live. Or you can listen to the edited version in the podcast form the following Tuesday. If you'd like to support the live or the podcast, you can head over to bit.ly slash ourpod, B-I-T dot L-Y slash O-U-R-P-O-D and help support these ongoing programs. Thanks a lot. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome, everyone, to our Wednesday Live and uh, future podcast. We are excited to have you here. So, the topic of the day. Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. So, show of hands with the attendees. Do we see show of hands in webinars? I think we do. Maybe we don't. Maybe we'll just see comments. So, No, they can raise their hand. Yeah. So raise your hand if you have um, uh, run into a little bit of imposter syndrome in your in your travels. <laughs> For those of you listening on the podcast, the stream is filling up with raised hands, rapid fire. Mm-hmm. So not an unusual state for folks. I'm trying to figure out why the hands numbers are going down now, but I guess that was, they, I guess. Put them up and they go down. They, they go up and down. Okay. Yeah. I can do a little, press a little button that says lower all attendees hands. I, just, oh, I see. The power. Yeah. You know, I think it's almost safe to say that I've never worked with a client who in academia who didn't have imposter syndrome. Hmm. Even the folks who don't appear to have imposter syndrome or who think that they don't or wouldn't walk into a meeting saying, I have it, when we work with them, either in writing or in speaking, um, they turn out to be doing a lot of uh, unconscious things that uh, indicate imposter syndrome, a lot of, of self-minimization, self-juvenilization, things like that. What do you... Um... What do you, so give me some of the ex- examples of what you see. Well, when we start with an answer, you know, in an interview intervention and people say something what like, well, you know, I really hope that my uh, work shows that, uh, uh, you know, this thing is the case. And I, th- I think that it's a really timely intervention. Although, of course, the field has been, you know, well studied by others, but I really just want to add to that conversation. And, you know, that's a, that was like, I don't know, what was that like 10 or 12 words, mm-hmm. but all were reducing yourself. Oh, yeah. And people are very unaware of that. Right. And so you think that they're reducing themselves because they have that classic definition of imposter syndrome that you just don't believe you're as competent as other people on mm-hmm. some, right? Mm-hmm. And you're afraid to say that you are. And there, there are different reasons for that too, because there are, because there, it can also be, be that even if you think your work is pretty good, you're afraid to state it too directly. And then that has a lot to do with women in particular and women's socialization that you should always be hedging and always be minimizing. Those are two different things. One is believing that you really are an imposter. One is having habits of expressing yourself as an 
but not as an imposter, but as less than. Yeah, and I want to clarify that because I think it's it's those people who were um, who were categorized as female at birth and raised as such mm-hmm. who are more likely to deal with imposter syndrome. Um, just to to make that a little bit broader definition, um, but the thing that I think is so interesting about it is that imposter syndrome is so often an issue for super achieving people. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not a. It's not something that we see with people who are, um, well, that that I see is that people who are not doing stuff, it's people who are doing so much. Mm-hmm. And st- <laughs> so they're super high achieving. Yeah, true. That's and true. This sense of sort of a fraud or like you've tricked everybody. Mm-hmm. Like they're going to find out. Mm-hmm. I know it's one of, I know one of the, they're going to find out is one of those really common. I read this in a book years ago, really common for adult children of alcoholic, adult children of alcoholics. That's mm-hmm. what, that there's a significant imposter syndrome thing in there. So I don't know how that ties in, but I just, that just popped into my head. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, that feeds into the really peculiar uh, thing that you and I have both noticed, but I, in particular, because I work with negotiators. So people who have actually scored the tenure track job and the, the, the really striking phenomenon that imposter syndrome seems to go through the roof after you get the tenure track job offer. Right. right. And I don't know, folks gathered here today, we have 20 of you have joined us. Thank you. What, uh, what do you think that's about? Like give us an example of a time that it's just popped up for you. When have you just kind of been cruising along and then something just goes boop. Like I have, there's a person in who's, who's in my um, unstuck program, the, the digital product productivity program I have, and we have a social media page. And I said that we were going to do a webinar about imposter syndrome. And somebody wrote, Oh my gosh, I, my new position was just announced today. And I'm awash in imposter syndrome with somebody who was, who was, um, uh, I can't think of the right word, promoted to an assistant dean. So mm-hmm. it's like go from faculty up to this thing and kind of go, ah. So I am really interested in those times when you felt it, folks have felt it. Mm-hmm. Here's the, some of the, here's some of the things I noticed that people do while you're, while you're writing that out. And so maybe some of you want to comment on this. Like I said, you work harder. And you work harder in this theory that you're going to keep people from recognizing your shortcomings. Mm-hmm. Like if I just work faster and harder, you won't understand. You won't learn that I don't know how to do this. <laughs> I just, I just love the logic of that. It's one mm-hmm. of my favorite things, right? So here's somebody who said right after exactly what Karen said, right after getting an offer, I struggled to finish my dissertation, questioning every page I wrote even though I finished it well above, well, it finished it well by disciplinary standards. That's exactly what I mean, right? Suddenly the fear that you're not good enough makes you do even more. So nobody sees that you're not good enough. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, and, and maybe it's like, um, maybe it's like being put to the ultimate test. So it's like, I'm an imposter. I fooled people up to this point. Now you've given me a job. Oh shit. Now it's all going to be revealed. All going to be revealed. I'm not actually qualified to do this. Right. I well, wonder if that's that's what it is. 
I'm not really qualified to do that. And then they're going to find it out, right? Mm -hmm. Then giving a presentation for a $16 billion asset, I panic. They are basing decisions based on what I say. <laughs> I was nauseous for the whole day. <laughs> See, what I love about that is, is and, and I hear this a lot, like, oh my gosh, I've, I've been invited to do this talk. And it's always, it seems like it's these really high-end, really big deals, right? I've been, I've been, been invited to do a talk to the federal government. I've been invited to do a talk on a $16 billion asset. At, like they didn't vet you before they asked you. Like they just <laughs> looked the Rolodex and said, I don't know, that seems like a good name. Let's pick them. I mean, right. People are just really not that altruistic. Right. They're much more self-serving. They're not mm -hmm. picking you in spite of you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're picking you because of you. Mm -hmm. And you've revealed to them your qualifications. So, but I think it's really, both of those responses are really, really common. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's the very, uh, I, I want to get right out ahead of the point that I, some folks are undoubtedly thinking, which is it's not imposter syndrome when you're constantly being treated like an imposter. Right. You know, let's not individualize a structural issue. People who are not cisgender, straight white men are, by and large, viewed as imposters in academia to this day. Well, they're and what? They're told they are. Yeah, they're told they are. And so, I mean, it's une uneven. It's a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, someone was about to say that. Um, it's uneven, uh, and certainly in terms of different fields, and some fields are, are much more closed than others, but there's no field and no university setting where, you know, the system is set up to be thrilled uh, or provide abundant and generous support for people who deviate from the quote unquote norm. And so when you get these messages that you're an imposter, and you know, honestly, you might be getting them not just from the institution, but also from your own, your own friend, quote unquote friends and family. Uh, like why, what makes you think you can get a PhD? Right. So there's a lot that goes into it. And I think there's a lot of, and one of the people commenting right now is talking about once you get hired, the sort of constant questioning of what you're doing, its validity, um, your suggestions, your ideas, even though they will, you will find yourself viewing them being used later without credit. Um, there's, there's the constant drip of that. No, not like that. No, we don't do it like that. And when people are trying to approach things a different way, you know, I never forget that they're called disciplines, you know, there's, it's not called a area of study or a, a explorations right they're called <laughs> disciplines like we're yeah. going to discipline you into this thinking right and we're going to and punish you <laughs> and punish you and we're going to make you feel like you don't belong and so i think that that's really important to remember that imposter karen's right imposter syndrome is as much as anything externally placed by people who are saying "Ooh, you're an imposter you're not you're not the kind of people we really want here mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, there's the uh, the 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 surface desire to diversify, bring people in, and and then say, yeah, but actually, that you really aren't what we really wanted. And oh, now you're here, you're just messing up our system, and basically making it impossible for the newly hired or whatever person to function 
effectively, which is when I was looking at something that someone shared and said, when I uh, get hired and then every decision or input is questioned or belittled, even right. though after a while my suggestions are followed. Right. Yeah. And then there's this next comment, I think that gets at what you're a little bit at what you're talking about. And then the next thing I, that I kind of wanted to add about imposter syndrome, mm -hmm. it says, I think as you go make progress going for the master's to the PhD, to the postdoc, to the tenure track, you feel like people, in other words, supervisors or the people who hired you expect more from you. Mm -hmm. So for example, I have way more imposter syndrome during my PhD versus my master's because my advisor expects more from me which is actually one of the things about imposter syndrome. Your further accomplishments don't make you feel better, mm -hmm. right? They're either one more of an effort of you trying to maintain, like, don't look behind the curtain, right? Or that sense of like, I just have to keep, I have to keep proving, I have to keep showing up. I have to, I have to be perfect in this instead of improve. Gradually, as you learn more, of course, what you knew as a master's student is not going to be as much as you know as a PhD. Mm -hmm. But that idea that of I have to scramble mm -hmm. to make sure that you never get to see the, you know, the person behind the curtain operating the mm -hmm. machinery. And I just want to do a shout out too to the way that this impacts career performance first in academia and then in the transition out of it, that in academia. Uh, when you're, I, we see people right now. We're in the, you know, campus visit season, such as it is. Or, you know, the handful of places that are still doing them, and people are giving job talks, and we're editing job talks. And the interesting thing, one of the greatest single problems in a job talk, is the getting lost in sort of a comprehensive exam style literature review, where you think that in the job talk you have to keep proving, like you did back when you were a master's student that you are a legitimate scholar, that you've actually read all the books and all of that. And that's imposter syndrome, uh, because that's, that, is a, that is a sense of self that is inappropriate for your current stage, because by the time you've been invited to give a job talk, you have been anointed as a credible candidate for the job and, and a credible potential peer and faculty, faculty colleague. So now they're not, they're not testing that anymore. The only thing they're testing now is, you know, do we like the way you comport yourself? Do you seem to fit in with the department? Do we like your Q and A? You know, how do you perform in live interviews with a variety of different constituencies? So there's still surveillance going on, but it's no longer that at all in any way, shape or form that you have to make a case that you're legitimate. But people don't know that. And so that plays out in the job search at the advanced levels. But um, also in the transition out of the academy, it's almost even more painful because, uh, because the academy trains out of us um, an awareness of all we are and yeah. all we know and, who, and the true glorious scope of who we are until and to the, just a handful of, of CV categories like publications, grants, uh, teaching, and um, dissertation topic. And in fact, you have a lifetime of skills that you have mastered but you have systematically been made to forget that you have mastered them. Yes, and I think that fits into, so one of the things I was looking at recently as part of trying to get to this imposter syndrome in coaching is I was skimming, and I will say skimming, I haven't read, but just looking through a book that came out in 2011 um, by uh, a, a researcher in imposter syndrome, Valerie Young, Dr. Valerie Young, and um, the book's called the Secret Thoughts of Successful Women. Hmm. It's 
something about why capable people suffer from imposter syndrome, right? Um, and and she identifies different types of imposter syndrome, hmm. which I think hits on exactly what we're talking about, right? And, and one of them kind of threw me for a loop because I didn't ever think about it this way, but the one doesn't. So the first one, you can all guess, right? The, the actual, the, the classic imposter syndrome behavior is the perfectionist. You're going to, you need to get it perfect. So nobody ever thinks that you don't get it, right? And that you, every, when you make small mistakes, you have this massive sense of failure. You don't have a, 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 a response equal to the event because you're doing anything you can um, not to be seen as the imposter that you are, which means for me as a productivity coach, what I know that that perfection, perfectionism leads to is either not starting or not finishing a project. Too afraid to start or too afraid to finish because of the judgment. So show of hands, anybody have a Anybody have, have some perfectionism coming in there where they feel like their imposter is at work? Yep, lots of hands going up, right? Lots of amen is one of the comments, mm -hmm. right? I appreciate uh, every minute of every day. I, I, I appreciate what one commenter just said. I also feel like an input. And let me preface this by saying, I really want to, uh, it's really important to me to talk about these things as they bridge academia and the transition out of academia because virtually everything applies, but imposter syndrome really does. And uh, the comment is, I, I also feel like an imposter applying to jobs outside of academia, which has long compelled me to look exclusively at entry level jobs right. in industry. Uh, you know, because you've been told that you're not qualified, that the only proper route for you is the tenure track job. All of these, I mean, there's there's too many to mention the messages that you get sent about how you can't make it. And, and of course, I'm going to say that's because of the abusive relationship with academia, which is the classic, you'll never make it without us. Yeah, you'll never, you'll never find anybody as good as me. You'll never find anybody as good as us. And you're not safe without us. Mm -hmm. So, uh, which like, that's an abusive message. Anyway, um, and it does make that transition really, really hard. So the other, the other one that she mentions is the natural genius. And this is the one that just threw me completely oh. because I didn't even think about this. Yeah. If you are a person who has gone along in life, easily picking stuff up, right? If you got that pointed out to you a lot when you were young, like how you were just so naturally learn everything, what are you going to learn then? That if something doesn't come easily to you, right? Or you fail to succeed, it's something to be super embarrassed and ashamed about. And it's going, it's going to show you out as not being something because you believe that competent people can handle anything. So you're, you see every mistake as proof mm -hmm. you're actually an imposter because you believe you're supposed to handle it. Because mm -hmm. you handled these seven things easily. So why can't you handle these three things easily? It must be because you don't belong here. And I see people all the time in productivity stuff like, oh no, I don't know how to do this thing. Right. Therefore, I don't belong here. Right. I don't know how to write a dissertation. I don't know how to write a paper. I don't know how to write a CV. All of these things are proof. I don't belong here. Right. This theory is incredibly complicated and I'm not getting it on the first pass. Guess what? Everything, everything all the way up to this course 
I always got on the first pass. Mm-hmm. I cannot understand what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I remember that when I took a physics class and the first time I ever hit a class that I couldn't just like study at the last minute, just like, mm-hmm. what kind of fuckery is this? It's a <laughs> sign that I must not deserve a degree. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I'm, so I'd love to see another show of hands of how many of you go along. And when you, you feel like you're pretty competent at things, but you have these holes where you feel like you're not, and that's a sign that you don't belong in the academy, or you've had people tell you that. Or remembering the folks who are leaving academia, that you feel like if it's a struggle to imagine yourself outside of academia or in an industry job or whatever, that therefore that's proof you can't do that either. Right. There's all, there's all sorts of there's so many permutations of this. And in some ways, it's almost easier to imagine with the, the journey out because you've been trained for five or 10 or 12 years to be inside. So you know that like the back of your hand to some degree. Right. But uh, but if but then when you try to leave or think of all even just think of alternatives, that's all we're talking about. You don't actually have to leave, but just think of an alternative career, alternative job. Suddenly it's like, well, that's like super hard and I can't do it. So clearly it's a bad idea. I better rush back into the safety of what I know, the devil I know. Right. And and I just noticed that there are a couple of people who are commenting at the Q&A instead of the chat. Oh, I know that. So I want to say that right now somebody said, Right now, I reached out to publishers, and they're all really interested in seeing the proposal, book proposal. And now I'm freaking out, but trying not to be scared and send in my work. <laughs> and at this point, she comments because I know I have to answer to tell on Monday because we have a meeting. Okay, so I'm going to know whether it got sent in or not. Which is a really good <laughs> thing to realize is that if you have people to be accountable to, it can help you through. And can you see the other one, Karen? Or do I, need I had a critical mentor who in, reinforced my imposter syndrome. Now that I'm an advisor, can you please share more about how to be a better advisor who doesn't reinforce these feelings in her students? What a great question. And I think that we, as we, as I sort of pop through these different kinds of, of imposter syndrome, that as an advisor and as an advisor to yourself, you can notice your propensity and then you can notice how to coach those people. You can notice if somebody is being the, you know, the perfectionist. Oh, I don't want to hand it into you quite yet. Oh, I don't really want to see it yet. Because or the natural genius. Or the nat- you know, like you saw them all the way through and then they're coming in saying, I really don't understand this, right? The absolute, somebody commented, and this is perfect, the curse of the gifted and talented kid from elementary school, right? You're so gifted. You're so talented. What about with the thing I struggle with that then you won't won't think I'm so gifted or talented. So I think mm-hmm. you can look for those. I think the- um, How with, many more are there, by the way, from your list from this book? Three, three more? Five. I'd love to hear them. And then maybe we can address them and- Yeah, well, that was my plan. Yeah. <laughs> the, the next- I've been sort of like all in a row. So then we have the full complement to work with. But. So the other three, and then we can talk about them is the rugged individualist. So that's that you believe you can handle everything. Oh my stuff. gosh. But here's the thing I want to talk about. It's it's that, but it's also the academy. It tells you from the very beginning that you should be able to handle it by yourself. So I think that 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 one creates that. Like you should be able to know this. You should be able to figure this out. The expert, before you consider your work a success, it has to be, you have to know everything about the topic. You have to have read it all. You devote so much time to pursuing it that you never actually do it. Mm -hmm. How many of you in the, I've got to read one more article. I've got to cite, get one more source, right? 
because I, I, I can't be able to fail to answer some part of it or right. I'm a fraud. Right. 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 If I'm that's in- so treacherous. It's like uh, if I'm not, in fact, it, in our, you know, this as well in our, in our campus visit coaching, people are like, but, or the job talk coaching. And they're like, but what if they ask me about this theory uh, that I don't really engage with and I haven't really read much about, and it was published in 1987. And, and you're like, oh, that's fine. You say, I don't really engage with that. Thing. I don't really engage with that. I engage no, with this other, but my work focuses on this other stuff. And you're an expert in the other stuff that you actually do, not the one thing you didn't do or the five things you didn't do. Yeah, that's, that's such a good one. And then what's the last one? This one is the superhero. So you link your competence to um, succeeding in every role you hold. Oh my God. Why is every one of these true for me? I'm feeling very called out right now. I have to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then this, so you just basically to succeed, you push yourself to the limit and you, and you do try to do 110% in every single role and Mm -hmm. end up not being able to do that because that the math doesn't add up. Right. And then you're, then you get to feel incompetent, which makes you feel like you're an imposter and you shouldn't even be there. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So which I I just want to say also, I mean, so it's clear it's work-life balance stuff as well. Not just that say in order to do your doctoral project, you have to have read these books and done these statistics and run this analysis and gathered this information and run a lab thing or whatever those, and you may not be equally strong in all of those because nobody could be, but it's also, you know, what are you feeding your kids? (laughs) How many hours of television are they watching? Are you getting exercise every day? Are you, you know, all of these different ways, all of these different quote unquote achievement areas that we can find a hundred different things to beat ourselves up about. Well, and it's like one, this goes back to the, to the, um, I think the expert idea, somebody commented, if you screw something up, even very advanced, it makes you feel like you don't understand something fundamental. Mm -hmm. So we go from this, um, I made this little mistake. It must mean I don't know everything because I'm supposed to be the expert in all of Mm them. Here's the thing, folks. Um, guess what imposter syndrome leads to? You want to guess? What are your, what are, what, what are the feelings for those of people on the call and for those of you that are out listening, when you think about feeling in it, like you're an imposter, what's your first body felt feeling? What's your first felt sensation when you think about I'm an imposter? Anxiety? stomach drops, drained out. So if we take those three right there, panic, mm-hmm. panic, eye twitches, I'm eye twitches, swoon feeling, my new year resolution, leave, oh, right, leave the gym membership so I don't beat mm-hmm. myself up, right? Mm-hmm. I can't talk, I'm anxious, crying, So one of the things that we know about imposter syndrome over time, if you're running on any one of those five tapes or all five of them, is they lead to anxiety and depression because you never get to rest. Mm -hmm. You're always worrying or you're feeling like you're never meeting up. I thought you were going to say shame. I think shame is the force. I think the outcome is maybe that's the in-between step. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder where shame fits in there. 
Don't they all inspire shame? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I just meant I was going with shame rather than anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <laughs> those are obviously not in contradiction with one another. But I just, uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, of them more, I, of the, um, of them as the, that is the mental health outcomes of long-term imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that you're right, that they are, they are, their, their fuel is shame, right? They're, they exist. And then we feel ashamed that it makes them bigger and bigger and bigger. Because shame comes from the sense that you, that the, your community has rules and you have failed them and that you're being laughed at and possibly excluded or excluded and possibly laughed at by the members of the community. You've been found out, you're a, you don't belong. So in a way, yeah, the imposter syndrome and shame are like almost two sides of the same coin. And shame is, is, is external. And so this is, it's externally imposed, right? We shame people for exactly right, to move them out of, out of community with us. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, that shame is us or the system or our training telling us we don't belong, you don't belong. And that's what, that's what imposter syndrome is telling us every single time, mm-hmm. right? So that idea, but the, here's the thing I want you to understand, but before I do that, I wanna read this one comment because I think it's so important. I, I know it comes from racism and sexism, but then I'm ashamed that I let racism and sexism get to me, right? What's the Toni Morrison quote about the very, the very, um, essence of racism is distracting you from your work mm-hmm. and you to prove your value and your worth. It's a serious um, paraphrasing, but um, I, that idea that you also then get caught between the two. Like, I know this is externally imposed. I know this is doing this to me. What's wrong with me? That, that, well, guess what? They're very powerful systems mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I have one line left, but go ahead. I have something I want to say, though. I want to come return to the person who said, can you give us advice about how not to reinforce that? And there's there are many ways to approach the advice or, you know, how to change that break, that 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 cycle of hypercriticism and shaming. But I think um, where as I was listening to you, Kel, I was thinking that um, that the that that uh, Brene Brown's whole work is that the opposite of shame is vulnerability, mm-hmm. and that um, and now, I hasten to add that in academia you have to be very careful about your vulnerability because it's not a safe. A lot of people aren't safe, but with your own graduate students, so as to not be a, an abusive, uh, hypercritical advisor, it is actually possible to be a little bit vulnerable. Um, by saying something like, I, I, I wanna suggest some works for you to read for your comprehensive exams, but you know, I'm actually not an expert in that field either. So um, we can explore this together. And that's a, that's a kind of vulnerability that I think uh, stops you from occupying that place of the, uh, you know, the, the, the judger, <laughs> the judge and jury of p- other people's failures. Yeah, I think that we can do that. I think we can go both ways, right? We can model it and we can also speak to it. And I think there's a lot of stuff that happens in academia where we don't just speak to it, where we don't say, say, it seems like you're trying to be perfect at this and get it exactly right. I need you to know that I don't need that. Mm -hmm. 
you're being perfect at it is not required here. Mm-hmm. Or I see that you're, you're, you're really scrambling to know everything before you even start. Mm-hmm. You know everything before you start. You can you just- tell- and another and again these this is we have to be strategic about doing this and make sure that we're speaking to safe people and we're this we're really focused on advisees right now as opposed to colleagues but sometimes sharing your own horror stories is the best way and i remember just last week i was having a conversation with a younger friend who was struggling with her children and um and uh, as some of you know may or may not know you know cal and i have had uh, a number of challenges with young adult children and um and i ended and i was just listening and i was being a you know sounding board and trying to give a little advice and and at one point i i, I told a story about how i ended up shrieking at the children as loud as i like at the top of my lungs in the houston airport because they were being toads and there was a whole set of circumstances, but I was a very volatile mother for a while until I did a billion years of therapy and adjusted my medications. <laughs> anyway, whatever else. The reason I'm telling this story, first of all, I'm being vulnerable and I want you to know this is a thing we can do, but also my friend, her face changed, her shoulders relaxed. Her, she just beamed. Her whole energy changed, and she was like, "Oh, oh my god, oh my god!" And she was like, "I love you, Garrett." But the point was, the point was, is that it gave her permission to relax, just for that, even for that split second, to stop beating herself up. She didn't beating herself up. She didn't feel alone anymore in that moment. And I realized that compared to all the other advice that I had been giving, that that one story did more work than anything else did. Right. Instead of the, let me show, tell you how to fix that. It's first of all, I see you and I've been you and mm-hmm. I've not done it well. Sometimes I've really, really messed it up mm-hmm. and it's okay that you mess it up now and again, mm-hmm. you don't have to be the perfectionist or the expert and nobody's an expert in that until they're, until they're through it. And then they're only an expert in their kids. So you're mm-hmm. still an expert. And, and so many elements of the academic career or any career, post-academic career is the same way. You're really not an expert while you're in it. You're an expert after the fact, <laughs> if that, right? Because because right. we're gaining and, skills all the time, right? The, and and you're only an expert. Still, you're only an expert in your thing. You're not mm-hmm. you love to be like this is this is this is a perfect example of how we feed imposter syndrome. This is how I did my dissertation. I did it this way. Your advisee comes in. This is how you do a dissertation because that's the way you did it, right? Your advice, your um, advisee is sitting over there going, okay, the only way I can be an academic and be successful is if I do it like you do it. And then I go work on my dissertation. My brain doesn't work like yours. My time isn't like yours. My concentration isn't like yours. I have parents I have to deal with, kids I have to deal with, mental health, physical health, whatever. So they're sitting there going, I'm an imposter because this person said this is the way you do it. Instead of advisors or friends who say, so tell me what you're doing. Where are, the, where are the parts that you're struggling? And what I think about shame is shame cannot shame cannot survive in daylight. Mm-hmm. So when you can say out loud, I'm struggling with this thing, then you can, you've let the air see it. And Karen's right. Way back in the beginning, she says, you have to be mindful who you're having these conversations with. 
right? You don't want to go out there to that person who's practicing their imposter syndrome by being the expert, mm-hmm. right? By walking around knowing it all. People aren't safe by and large. By, I mean, not, you know, Karen is very uh, cynical. You know that. But uh, by and large, our colleagues are not safe in academia. They, you are more likely to, as I mean, it does hinge on your field and your surroundings, but you're more likely to encounter people who are, um, who will, I don't mean to say that they'll like actively abuse you, but they'll, I just think of all the times, especially earlier when I was a brand new PhD or trying to get my feet under me and that I was very uh, sincere and, uh, and, and genuine with some certain uh, colleagues and it never went well, never, 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 because they wanted, they were too busy performing their superiority. And I mean, we have to, uh, we can, we can all find those individuals, but we also have to just deal with this particular industry, mm-hmm. particularly toxic. And it's particularly toxic because it pretends like it's not an industry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so gaslighting going on all the time. Um, so the, that, that, that it's not, and I'm going to, and I'm going to say it's not a safe place, not necessarily from this super cynical place, but from this observed place of, I have the opportunity to coach several groups. I do productivity coaching for individuals and groups and I have several groups and I have some of them that I've been coaching for. I have one that I've been coaching for four years now, um, almost five. And one of the things that they consistently say is that there, it is the one place that they can come where they're safe to actually talk about their experience and that they have a little bit of cognitive dissonance when they go back out into the academy, because they're actually talking to academics who are dealing with this stuff. And then they go back out into the shark infested waters. So I think that the system is really messed up and it's hard to find a safe place to talk. And so I want to acknowledge that. But the the thing I really want to leave you all with before I be sure I say is that um, basically you've tricked yourself into believing that you're somebody that you're not. And so just start believing the evidence, right? You keep trying to trick yourself into believing that you're the over here when all the evidence shows that you're here. Meaning that, um, meaning that you did write your dissertation. They did award you that PhD. They didn't, it, well, you couldn't buy it. They did invite you to speak on that asset. <laughs> they did, they did, you know, give you a job. You kept the job. You keep going to school to your classes, you keep showing up, you, you know, you, you've moved through all these levels and you're, you've created a story about the person you're not, which is, I'm not worthy. I'm not this, I'm not that. When you're all those things, mm-hmm. the evidence, so you're, I mean, you guys are all PhDs or on your way. You analyze evidence, look at the evidence. It's fine. And just for those who are headed, who are trying to think about transitioning out, remember that there are tens of thousands at this point of PhDs who have successfully transitioned out, taking all of those skills they gained in academia, plus a whole bunch of skills that they had prior to, or that they gained after, you know, as a learning process and basically reinvented themselves. And that that is also possible. It's also possible to leave the security of the linear academic career track and not just survive, yes, survive, but also thrive. And that that's a story to tell as well, that I'm a person who 
um, it's not just that I wrote my dissertation and published my things and went to the conferences and teach my classes and I'm qualified in academia. It's also, you are a brilliant person with a multitude of, of, of highly unusual skills that are that is uh, very desirable outside of academia as well. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, and I think if you can change your relationship, if you, if you are working in academia and you can change your relationship to out of an abusive spouse relationship, that it's a great place to stay too. So, all right. I think that about wraps it up for us. It does. It's, uh, technically, we have five more minutes. Does anyone want to share anything? Any thoughts? Any reactions? We have questions that you want to ask. Questions. One of the mathematicians I knew said that Sesame Street ruined so many lives. Learning and doing is painful at times. That's normal. Does that mean that Sesame Street makes learning too fun and easy? Is that the problem? Mm. <laughs> now, we're, now, we're, now we're taking out Sesame Street. Uh, <laughs> uh, Roy Kent was on Sesame Street, and that's hilarious mm. from, you know, Ted Lasso. Yes. Um, and I do just want to add, you know, we talked about it, and I just want to make sure that we reinforce it, that 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 imposter syndrome is also externally imposed systems of bias and are, are at play all the time in feeding that in you. you. This is not an individual failure. This is a systemic issue that is visited on the individual. All right. Looks like we don't have any more questions. Thank you so much. I can't tell you guys how much your comments um, and questions really enliven the conversations. They really do. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Have a See great you next week. <laughs>